0: We're going to come to a time now where we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. And we're going to look today, finishing up the first chapter of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. It is on page 8 to 7, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. And when you found that, would you stand together with me? We're going to read uh, the entirety of Paul's prayer that actually begins back in verse 15, just for context. But we're going to focus specifically in on verses 19 through 23 is our passage this morning. Paul says this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is what Kent uh, led us through last Sunday and just a great message. We definitely recommend go back and watch or listen through that this week. Here's where we're going to focus now, the last part of Paul's prayer, that you may know, he says, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title or or name that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him or gave him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is God's word. may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll dig in here. The Spirit of God, we trust you to be present now here through your word as you have been already in so many ways this morning. I trust that you will do that work of revelation, that you will do that work of enlightening of our hearts. The eyes of our hearts to see and to to know what is the the hope of your calling. Riches of your glorious inheritance. Incomparably great power for us. God, may these things be impressed deeply on us today. Break down every resistance, every wall, every reasoning, attitude that would just want to explain these things away. I trust that you would just impress them so deeply on our hearts that we would just come out of here today changed and different. Work powerfully, God, through this word right now, I ask. You say that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to your void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I think uh, she was only six or seven years of age at the time. I can't remember exactly but I can still remember this time with my oldest daughter at the playground out behind the Carisdale Community Center. Not a huge playground, but this is where my oldest daughter faced one of the biggest, most fearful challenges of her life at the time, swinging from one end of the monkey bars to the other end all by herself without anyone touching her. This is huge. This was big for her. Six or seven. Now, I know it doesn't sound like that big of a challenge, but you have to take into account the fact that these monkey bars, they're not the super kitty ones. These ones rise at least seven feet above the ground. And I don't know if you've met my oldest daughter. She, she wasn't as tall then as she is now. Okay, so it was, was a bigger deal, bigger drop. And so, you know, she, she's, she's getting ready to do this. And although we had been playing at this playground pretty much since the day she was born, she's, she's familiar with this place, she knows it, Still, as she's climbing up the ladder to get to the bars, uh, I could see her her little knees were shaking, actually. Super cute, actually. And so I'm, I'm, I'm watching this, and now because I see that, instead of just kind of sitting back and watching, I come right over, I stand right underneath the bars, and by the ladder, I'm just encouraging her, come on, you can do this, I know you can do this, I'm right here with you. But although she had grabbed the first bar in front of her, and I knew she wanted to swing out, I literally watched her confidence just slipping away moment by moment as she looked between the bars in front of her and the ground and the bars and the ground and the bars and the ground. I just see the confidence slipping out of her, and I knew any minute she was going to climb back down the ladder and back out. And so in that moment, I did what any loving father would do. I forced her. (laughs) I forced her feet off the platform so she had to go. Now, grabbing her around the legs fully supporting her weight, so literally all she had to do was just put her hands on the bars as I carried her from one end to the other, which she did, screaming and crying the entire way across, only to get to the platform on the other end and then asked to do it again. <laughs> Suddenly she's ready. Now, now, what was going on there? Let's just examine this for just a minute. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that she didn't know how to get from one end to the other, Right. She'd seen countless kids do this. She'd practiced hanging and building up her grip strength. She, she knew what to do. And nor was she unaware of my promise to, to carry her, to, to, be, to be there, to watch over, to sustain her all the way across. I said this repeatedly. I'm here. I'm not going to let you fall. No, I think what overwhelmed her was that although she knew my promise to sustain her, in that moment, she believed All she truly had to rely on was her own strength and her own ability to get her across, which in her view was not enough. And so she was ready to back out. "I I can't take my feet off the ledge and do it. And yet, when she experienced my promise, when she really knew firsthand my superior power to sustain her in what I'd called her to do, suddenly she had confidence to try again what moments ago she'd have been unwilling to even attempt. Just think about that, considering that that picture in your mind. I want to begin this morning by asking you to consider a question as you think about your own life. And the question is this, what promise of God or calling of God on your life are you not walking in right now because you doubt either his power to fulfill it or his power to sustain you in it? Let me ask you again, what promise of God or calling of God on your life are you not walking in right now because you doubt either his power to fulfill it or to sustain you in it? And I'm really praying that the Spirit of God is going to just be revealing something specific to you right now. He's going to be pointing on something being like, yeah, yeah, that thing that I keep showing to you. Think specifically about what is that thing for you? And I'm asking you to consider that For the same reason the Apostle Paul was writing these words to the church in Ephesus and praying this prayer for them, namely, because although we might know the the power and the promise of God uh, theoretically, intellectually, maybe even theologically, we still don't know it. Like, we, we know it here, but not here as something experientially true. And so... As, uh, on the basis of that, uh, because we only know it here and not here, when we're faced with some scary, seemingly impossible circumstances in life, we, we freeze, we, we, we shrink back from whatever it is that God has called us to, not because we can't clearly see what we need to do in front of us, and not because we don't know or we aren't aware of God's promise to sustain and uphold us, but because, at the end of the day, what we truly believe, just like my daughter on those monkey bars, it's that in the end, God either can't or won't really sustain us. That all we actually have to rely on, whatever this scary thing we're facing, all we've really got to rely on is what we've got. Our own strength and ability, which we don't feel like is enough. So we freeze or we shrink back. We don't go forward into what he's called us into. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that the experience of the believers in Ephesus that Paul is writing to is no different. It's no different than that feeling you feel when you're faced with that scary, intimidating thing. Because think about it. Do you really believe that, that this letter here that Paul is writing to the church, this is the first time he's ever told them about the hope of God's calling, uh, the glorious inheritance in the saints, the incomparably great power of God for them. Is this, is this the first time they're ever hearing about it? No, right? He's probably preached hundreds of messages to them, sat with them, talked with them about these very things. So what that means is that what Paul's, Paul's prayer for them here at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, and my prayer for every single one of us here today as well, is not that God would somehow supernaturally impart more theological knowledge into your mind, but that you would really know You would know, rely on, trust in, more and more, this truth of what he's promised. Why? So that however fearful, however seemingly impossible the task in front of you might be, you'd still be willing to step off the ledge into whatever promise or calling God has on your life with the confident trust that his power is more than able to carry and sustain you from one end to the other. That what he has called us to, he also empowers us to. He's not left you on your own. And trusting in the incomparably great power of the Spirit of God to do that work in us this morning, I want to look at our passage here, finishing out Paul's prayer, in just two ways. I want to look at, first of all, God's power for us over death, which, of course, is one of the greatest Ledges, any of us are called to step off of them, which we all are going to have to step off one day. And then, God's power for us over every name. Okay, these two things, God's power for us over death and God's power for us over every name. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage in Ephesians 1? Follow along with me, starting at verse 19 there. So we seek to truly know, truly rely on the incomparably great power of God for us in Jesus for all who believe. (laughs) Okay, so let's look first of all at God's power for us over death. God's power for us over death. Before we specifically dig into that, something worth pausing just to note is that you may have noticed both in the title of this message as well as these two points that I just uh, mentioned, the way I keep referring to God's power for us. You notice this? You may have noticed uh, as we were doing the reading, that's the exact language Paul uses there in verse 19. If you look with me there, it says that we may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Some of your translations will have it as his, his power toward us who believe. Some of the older translations, his power to usward who believe. But whatever it is, Regardless, the idea is that all of this incomparably great power of of God that he has expressed and exerted through Christ is not something that he gathers up and collects for himself, particularly it is directed, it is guided specifically towards those who put their faith in God. Towards us. It's his power for us, which I think is, that's worth stopping to just point out and reflect on for a minute, because that's incredible. And it's something that's actually entirely unique about the God of the Bible, which we see demonstrated in the life of Jesus most specifically, namely that in the economy of God, power is expressed through him, not by subjugation, but by sacrifice. Power is, God expresses, not not by grasping hold of power and authority, but by laying it down for the benefit of others. That's how God expresses his power through Christ. And, of course, one of the places we see that sacrificial use of power demonstrated most profoundly is in the death of Jesus on our behalf. Making that redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins that we talked about back in verse 7, possible. But the good news of the gospel is not only that Jesus died on our behalf, it's also that he was raised to life again on the third day as he promised. He was raised to life again, which is another incomparable use of God's power that Paul speaks about at the beginning of verse 20. Look here with me. He says about the working of God's mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's where we see this demonstration of power, when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, Paul's going to go on in a minute here to talk about the exaltation of Christ, and we'll look at that as well in a minute. But what we're being shown here in particular is that the power and authority of God is demonstrated through uh, through Christ over death. That's how he first expresses this incomparably great power, by raising Jesus from the dead, showing his power over death. Which, think about it, talking about fearful, impossible circumstances, that would likely ra- rank somewhere around the top one or two things for pretty much everyone in every culture and every historical time period in every generation since death first became a part of our experience back in the Garden of Eden. It's something that, that we all understand the fear of. Why? Well, because death is something that every single one of us are going to face. We will all experience this. It doesn't matter what your resume says, what, what your bank account says, what your BMI report was last time you went in. It doesn't matter. Death, you will all still face death someday, and death, as we know, has a 100% success rate. 100% of people who experience death die. Which isn't at all to say that everyone's just walking around every day, you know, consciously thinking of and fearful of their death. They're not. I I don't mean that. Um, And in fact, you could could say that in Western culture in particular, we we go to great lengths to to not think about our mortality at all. We don't like thinking about that. No, I think where you see our world's really obsessive fear of death, one of the most common places you see it show up, it's subtle, but you see it in our advertising, actually. That's one of the places you see it most commonly, where, where every cream, every supplement, every health club, every surgery, every yoga class, every whatever it is, are all promising to either slow down the aging process or even reverse it altogether. That's the promise, you know, to be Forever 21 or whatever it is that you're supposed to be. It's this promise that you can slow it down. We can at least push it off for a little while if you'll just use this, if you'll just buy this, if you'll just. and, and, And I'm saying the power behind that advertising is built entirely on our fear of death, our fear of the end of our life. We want to avoid it at all costs. And so, yes, we'll just shut up and take my money. And while it's a far more complex issue than this, when death does come as it comes for all of us, I think one of the underlying principles you see in something like MAID, medical assistance in dying, which as you know in Canada, we're we're talking a lot about right now, and expanding some of the the use of this in in, in our country. And do we want that? Do we want to expand it? I think one of the underlying principles you see in something like that is our desire to just grab some bit of control back from an enemy which we are otherwise powerless underneath. I know it's coming, but at least I'm going to decide when I go. You're not going to take that from me. This, uh, we, we're, we're terrified of this thing that we're all facing and we don't know what to do. And it's true, right? Death, death is an enemy. It is an enemy that we all face. Whether you believe something happens after you die or you think nothing happens after you die. It's an enemy we all face and it's an enemy... Because it takes everything. It takes every single thing you've ever worked for from you. Your wealth, your possessions, your family, your relationships, even the very breath in your lungs. It takes it all. And I think we'd have to admit, even for those of us who do think something happens after we die, we feel like we're looking forward to some future with Jesus in, in heaven. And, and, and we'd say, yeah, that's, that's our hope. Even for those of us who do think something happens, there is still fear in facing death. There is still some unknown. I don't know what that's going to be, what that'll be like. And, and, and it's the ultimate test of faith, really. The ultimate test of faith is our death, where we step off this existence and find out if everything we've trusted in all our lives is really true. Those of you who uh, are familiar, for instance, with John Bunyan's classic allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, might be familiar with that scene near the end of the story, spoiler alert here if you haven't read it, where a Christian and hopeful, they reach the celestial city, yeah, they make it there, uh, the celestial city really representing heaven, but in order to get there, they need to cross this river that separates the spaces, and there's no bridge, there's, there's no boat to carry them across. And while his friend's passing over is relatively easy, Christian's, who's the main character in the story, his passing is not. Bunyan writes this, And entering the river, Christian began to sink, and crying out to his good friend hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Then said hopeful, "'Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good.' Then said Christian, "'Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey.' And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian, so that he could not see before him. And here, in great measure, lost his senses, so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage.' But all the words that he spoke still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and heart fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in the gate. Hopeful would endeavor to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate and men standing there to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is you. It is you alone they wait for. For you have been hopeful ever since I knew you. I had the great privilege in the past year to sit by the bedsides of our dear brother Frank, as well as uh, Charlie Nishi just this past week, who's gone home to his reward, to sit with them in their last days. And even them, they too, they spoke of a fear that creeps in around the faith that they so firmly held, seeking to pull it away, to knock out the feet from underneath it. In the book of Hebrews, all of humanity is described as those who all their lives have been held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what it says in Hebrews 2. And I think I think for those thoughtful, contemplative people who are more comfortable thinking about death, to those people who've been handed a diagnosis and have had been forced to think about death, I think that's a great way to describe our fear of death, like something that we're enslaved to and we're just longing for freedom from. I, I don't want to... Be in these chains. I want to be free of this fear. But in the face of this enemy that we've all been powerless to stand against for all of human history, what, what a blinding, hopeful ray of light it is to learn of Jesus, who by his death and resurrection, as Hebrews goes on to say, destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil which is exactly what Paul's referring to in our passage in verse 20 when he speaks of the working of God's mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So speaking of the incomparably great power of God working in Jesus' resurrection, if you think of uh, the very first message of the church that Peter gives right after Pentecost in Acts 2, It couldn't do it, which is where we see the power of God working in, a, in Jesus in a way that's unique from us, right? Because death can keep its hold on us, can't it? And it has held its grip on us for as long as death has been a part of our experience, even to this day. It's continued to hold on to us. But in dying and being raised to life, Jesus declares his victory. He declares his power and authority over death for all time, meaning that that which is our greatest, most powerful enemy is to Jesus a defeated, powerless foe now. But this, this right now is where this all becomes good news to us. This now becomes good news, both to the people that Paul was writing to in Ephesus, as well as to you and I today. Because just knowing Jesus has this superior power over death, it's, it's incomparable. It's praiseworthy. But it doesn't affect us all that much, does it? It's like, that's great for you, Jesus. I'm so glad you have power and authority over death. Great. Doesn't make much difference to us unless... Unless God's incomparably great power that he worked in Jesus is also for us. Do you see that? This is where the message of the gospel makes all the difference in the world for us. For if God's power over death demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus is also for us, then that means the enemy we once feared above all, that we were enslaved to all our lives, we can now know freedom from in Jesus which is what Hebrews goes on to say, the death of Jesus and resurrection, that he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by the free of death. He freed us. His victory is ours now. His power is for us, which means, first of all, when you face death one day, as we all must, you no longer have to face it in your own strength and ability. You're not going to be doing it in your own power, in your own strength. Praise God. It means you can now swing out off the fearful edge of life confidently, knowing that the promise and power of God are more than able to sustain you and bring you from one side to the other. How do you know that? Because God demonstrated in Christ that he's more powerful than death. And Paul just said that power is for us. That is the incomparably great power of God working through Jesus for us who believe that Paul wanted his readers to know and that God wants each one of us here to know today. It's the power that carried and sustained Dr. Frank in his last days. It's the power that sustained and and carried Charlie Nishi in his last moments. It's the power that's now going to sustain and carry Nikki's mom in her last days now that she's put a trust in Jesus. And it's the power that's going to carry and sustain you. If you have placed your faith and trust in the one who died and rose victorious over death for you, Jesus Christ, it's yours. It can be yours. So that's God's power for us over death. I kind of feel like we could just stop there and be good. (laughs) That's a lot. Like, wow, that's incredible. Already on its own and yet unbelievably... There's even more that Paul wants to show us here about the incomparably great power for God, of God for us in Jesus, in this prayer here. So it's not everything, but this is the last thing he's going to mention here in this passage. So let's look lastly at God's power for us over every name. God's power for us over every name. So as it relates to this demonstration of God's incomparably great power for us in Jesus, we see it here as we keep reading from verse 20 onward that it's a demonstration of God's power that grows directly out of, that has direct relation to Jesus' resurrection. Let's read again what Paul says about this power, and then we'll just talk about how it related to the readers then as well as to us today. So look at, first of all, the second half of verse 19. He says it's this incomparably great power for us who believe, and then he says, That power is like the working of his mighty strength, or according to the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title or name that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. So just, just following Paul's development of ideas here, this means that Jesus' exaltation above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, immediately followed his resurrection. It immediately followed his resurrection, which, if you're more familiar with some of Paul's other New Testament writings, might have immediately triggered a, a, another passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians that we often read commonly about this. Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. There's that sacrifice of power. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what we're being shown in, in both of these passages is that the exaltation of Jesus above every name, of every power, every every authority, whether on earth or in heavenly places, is something the Bible says flows out of his death and resurrection. It comes through his death and resurrection, leads to Jesus' exaltation. The point is that although it's incomparably great and and praiseworthy in and of itself, Jesus doesn't just have power and authority over death. His power and authority extend to every corner of the universe, of existence, both in this age as well as in any age to come, and also in, in the physical realm as well as in the spiritual realm. His power and authority extend over all things. Not just over death. One of the things you might have noticed there in Philippians 2, as well as in our passage in verse 21, is that Paul seems to highlight particularly Jesus' name. talks about how his name is, is said to be the thing that's exalted above all others. And I'm not going to go into a great deal of, of depth here, but just something that is, is to point out because the name is something particularly significant, particularly for Jewish readers who put so much significance in a name. For them, a name wasn't just what your mama used to call you in for dinner. Your name had your, your personality it's who you were. It, was your, it had to do with your authority. And all these things were, were kind of wrapped up in what you were called. And then, of course, names had also a particular relevance to spiritual warfare, dealing with demonic forces. Uh, where, where names carry different degrees of authority and power. So remember when Jesus confronts the demoniac out in the, the graveyards, and he says, tell me what your name is. And he tells him this, you know, hardcore sounding name, my name is Legion, for we are many. And Jesus says... His name and battle's over, like that's it, right? So the the name, saying your name, had this incredible amount of significance in spiritual warfare. Paul's point here to those living in a spiritually dark, idolatrous culture in Ephesus, he's saying Jesus' name has authority over any name, over every other name that could ever be named. His name trumps them all. But once again, none of that has actually any significance at all for us. Good for you, Jesus. I'm glad your name trumps everybody else. That's great. Until again, we understand and know that the power and authority of Jesus' name is also for us. And along with Paul's statement that we read back at the beginning of verse 19 of that, you may have heard that again later on with Paul's statement in verse 22. Look there when he writes, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, that is Jesus, or gave him to be head over everything. Why? For the church. There it is again. He gave, put everything under his feet for the church. Revealing once again this entirely unique use of power that we see demonstrated in the Bible. It's a, it's a sacrificial, it's a, it's a giving use of power rather than a holding on to and clutching. Now, why this mattered so much to the gathered church at Ephesus will probably make a lot more sense when you remember the historical context that they were living in, which we talked about in the first message uh, in this series. For along with being a religiously pluralistic society in general, which, which all Roman colonies would have been, this temple of Artemis that they were stewards of here in Ephesus, which was listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it, they, they would have found themselves, the church here would have found themselves often with their new beliefs and customs, to be in direct conflict, right, with the cultural, the, the religious, socioeconomic norms all around them. <coughs> Excuse me. And Paul understands this environment well, right? <clears throat> he, he lived and served there for three years, and so he knows the environment that they're living in. And so Paul understands how essential it is that the Ephesian believers truly know and grasp the supremacy of Jesus' power and authority over every name, every other claim to authority, be that spiritual, be that political, lest fear, lest uh, persecution, lest any kind of thing that comes against them causes them to shrink back or pause from God's promise or call. (coughs) As Clinton Arnold says in his commentary, These believers lived in an environment with many competing competing claims of spiritual power. The Artemis cult, 50 other gods and goddesses, magical curses, incantations, other claims of spiritual power. They had every reason to fear. But Paul wants them to have an accurate understanding of the omnipotence of the God they now serve. And I know. I know that we love to, to look at this almost with a little bit of pity. In our late modern 21st century, we, we feel like we've advanced so much farther along than, than you know, these first century ancient peoples with their believing in things like idols and temples. We've, we've, we've moved so far beyond that, haven't we? Yeah. I think a statement like that, a sentiment like that, just shows how we truly don't really understand the nature of idolatry. <laughs> because as has been said by many before me and will be said after me, no one ever built a god of stone or wood that did not already exist and that they did not already worship in their heart. You construct an idol to worship that you already hold inside your heart. And I believe if the Apostle Paul were to walk the streets of Vancouver today, just like he did the streets of Vancouver, of uh, Athens back in Acts 17, I have no doubt whatsoever that he would speak to us on almost exactly the same way. People of Vancouver, I see that in every way you are very religious, for I walked your city and observed carefully your many objects of worship. And we would say, what what objects of worship? But he wouldn't be listing gods like Artemis and Zeus and Apollo. He'd be listing our modern day gods that we worship, things like Power, affluence, wealth, beauty, sports teams, uh, sexual freedom, independence. We've got places of worship all around our city that are dedicated to these gods that we offer all of our time, talent, and treasure to. And although we enjoy the protection of freedom and religion in our nation that maybe the church at Ephesus here didn't have, okay, We still live in a world and a culture that is increasingly closed and hostile to historic Christian beliefs, increasingly hostile to a worldview of Christianity. We're no less in need of the knowledge that the same rule and authority of God, which far exceeds all others that Paul is saying here to this church, exists in their day, that it exists in our day as well. We need to know that that same rule and authority exists here as well as in any age that is to come, and we'll need to know that. We'll need to really know that, not not here, but here, for instance, when our giving to the church no longer gives us any taxable benefit. We'll need to know that when our professional integrity is challenged or questioned simply because of our religious convictions. We'll need to know that when teaching God's word, what it says about the beginning of life, about marriage, about sexual identity, and all these things, becomes no longer just kind of outdated, antiquated ideas, but hate speech that is punishable by law. And if you like, listen to the news at all, you know these things are not years and years away. <laughs> Pretty much already here now. So we're going to need to not just know up here, yeah, Jesus, he's got supreme power. He's got authority. We're going to need to truly, deeply know that all things for all time have been placed under Jesus' authority and rule, that he is truly sovereign above all these things. We're going to need to know it here and really believe it and trust in it. We'll need to know it or we'll freeze. We'll shrink back. We won't follow God into the call that he's placed on all who believe in him, regardless of anything else that he may be calling you to specifically as an individual. And what is that? What, what is the thing that God has called everyone who believes in him to be, to walk in, trusting his power and authority to sustain us? What's, the, what's his call on every single one of us? It's to be his witnesses. That call is on every single one who claims Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You've been called to be his witnesses. When Jesus was about to ascend into heaven after his resurrection and his appearances to numerous people, and he's meeting with his disciples before he goes, what does he say? But you will receive power. Whose power? God's incomparably great power for us. That power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Okay, great. And that's awesome. Good. I, I, can't, I can't wait for that to happen. Why, though? Why, why are we given this power through the Holy Spirit? What? So that our faith will grow and flourish? Yes. Are we given this power so that we will uh, know and be able to understand God's Word and His will for our lives more and more? Yes. Are we given this power so that we'll be able to endure persecution and maybe even perform miraculous signs in Jesus' name? Yes, all those things and more. But is that what Jesus says the reason is, why we've been given the power primarily? No. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. That's the reason for the power primarily that we've been given, to be his witnesses, to be his disciple-makers, to be his followers of me-makers that Jesus calls us there in what's known as the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And maybe most significantly of all, considering all that we've already discovered in Ephesians about God's will to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him one day, Now that we see God's will and his vision for the future, to see that what we're also called is to be his ambassadors, to be his ministers of reconciliation, to reconcile two things that are apart, to bring them back together, which means, think about this, God's call on his church over which he is head is to be those who work to help bring about his will to unite all things together in heaven and on earth to himself. We work along with him to bring that vision about, and that's why we need the power. Because think about it: how are we going to do that? How could we possibly do that? How are we supposed to do bring things together in heaven and earth for God? Like we, I, I, like weak, finite, limited as we are, not to mention weakened in our flesh by sin as we are, how could we possibly carry out what we've been called to? And I have no doubt the disciples had the exact same question as Jesus first gave that great commission to them in Matthew 28. But the answer that Jesus gave his disciples then is just as relevant to us today. And you probably know it already if you've ever heard an exposition of that passage. For on either side of Jesus' great commission, you have Jesus' great claim and Jesus' great comfort. The commission in the middle, Jesus' commission, make disciples of all nations. That's what I'm calling you to do. Make disciples of all nations. Bring all things, unite all things together in heaven and on earth. That's what I'm calling you to do. But before he, makes, he gives that commission, he begins with the claim, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's saying, I, I've been raised and now exalted above all of the names, power, and authority. Therefore, because that's true, go and make disciples of all nations. But although he has all authority to simply just command us, Jesus immediately follows his great commission with the great comfort, which each and every one of us needs to deeply know and rely on if we're ever going to step off that ledge and swing out into what God is calling each of us to, when he adds, and surely I am with you always. That is both my presence and my power. I am with you always until the very end of the age. I'll close this morning by asking you the very same question that I began with this morning what promise of God or calling of God on your life are you not walking in right now because you doubt either his power to fulfill it or his ability to sustain you in it what's that thing for you maybe you're facing death Maybe you're facing illness or just the the process of, of aging, either yourself or for a loved one, and you're stuck on the ledge because you doubt His power to sustain you through it. Maybe you're facing persecution at home or at work or at school, and you're shrinking back in doubt because you don't want to be the witnesses that God has called you to be because you don't really believe in His supremacy above all things. Maybe you know his calling, but you feel hopeless and discouraged. You feel like giving up because you you feel like you're just trying to carry out the commission in your own strength and not relying on his power to do it. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning, you've never known or experienced the incomparable greatness of God's power in Jesus to redeem and restore you and reconcile you back to him. Wherever you're at right now, wh- however you answered that question, my prayer for every single one of us here today, myself included, is the same as Paul's prayer. That for the first time, or or the 700th time, you might truly and deeply, experientially know the incomparably great power of God for us in Jesus, for all who believe. That you would really and truly rely on it. Not just know it intellectually, but believe it enough that you would actually step off into what God's called you to. That you would know that nothing is too hard for the Lord. That you would know that with God all things are possible. And then as a result of that knowing that we might swing out into all that he has called us to walk in, trusting, as Paul says, faithful is he who has called you and he also will do it. Trusting as he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? His incomparably great power for us. What are we waiting for? Let's step out and trust him in him. Amen.